0: Books and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what
1: we're reading. But in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week we have fun conversations with
0: interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who
1: they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover.
0: November 11th is a day on which we celebrate and honor veterans. It was on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month that the armistice to end World War I occurred. Although the Treaty of Versailles was signed in June of 1919, the temporary end of hostilities had happened six months prior. Of course, veterans have long played a central role in storytelling and literature. Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey tell the stories of men in the midst of battle and what happens to them once they're off the fields. From Ireland to India, war and the warriors who fight them have been integral to the stories that have been passed down through time. Shakespeare, too, in his works, has examined the humanity of soldiers in all its various forms. Kentucky Shakespeare started an outreach program five years ago called Shakespeare with Veterans, which is like a reading club, theater troupe, and support group all rolled into one. We have two guests this week. First, we have Amy Attaway, the Associate Artistic Director of Kentucky Shakespeare, who also runs the Shakespeare with Veterans program. Then later on in the show, we will be joined by Stephen Montgomery, who is a Vietnam veteran who served in both the Army and Navy and was a career officer until his retirement several years ago. He is a member of the Shakespeare with Veterans group. General George C. Marshall once said, The soldier's heart, the soldier's spirit, the soldier's soul are everything. So on this Veterans Day, we talk to Amy and Stephen about why Shakespeare's plays speak to the experience of military veterans in a way other literature does not, what veterans find in the group that reminds them of their time in the military, and how this group enriches their hearts, spirits, and souls.
1: This week, our guests are Amy Attaway, who is Associate Artistic Director at Kentucky Shakespeare, and also the Director of one of their programs, Shakespeare with Veterans. Uh, She joined us today along with one of her colleagues in that group, Stephen Montgomery, who is an Army veteran and a member of Shakespeare with Veterans. So we're very excited to have both of them here with us today. So Amy, tell us a little bit about Shakespeare with Veterans. What is that program?
2: Absolutely. Happy to virtually see you both. I know. (laughs) So Shakespeare with Veterans is a program of Kentucky Shakespeare. We have a a bunch of different programs where we use Shakespeare as a tool to serve a population out in the community. But Shakespeare with Veterans is by far the longest standing and I think most exciting. We started the, the program about five years ago with retired Colonel Fred Johnson, who worked with the Fund for the Arts and was a big part of the arts community for a long time. And he went to see a performance of Shakespeare Behind Bars, which is a prison program that was started as a program of Kentucky Shakespeare and is now its own nonprofit. And Matt Wallace, who's our producing artistic director still runs the Kentucky branch of that program. And once a year, the public is able to go out and see performances there. So Fred went and saw a performance, and was really impressed by it and impressed by the program. And so he came to Matt and said, could you do something like this with military veterans? And Matt said, absolutely, let's do it. Um, He got me on board. And we started with one meeting a week opening it up to any veteran who wanted to come. We partnered with the Louisville Vet Center, which is on 3rd Street downtown. So it's men and women from all wars in living memory, people from all branches of the service, from all ranks. We have everybody from uh, infantry soldiers to brigadier general from the Air Force. And we meet together once a week and talk about Shakespeare. That's the basic thing we do. We talk about Shakespeare through their perspective through their lens as soldiers who have served in wartime. We also perform out in the community. We perform sort of wherever we're invited, you know, everywhere from DDW, the color company's annual meeting to the Metro Sewer District annual Veterans Day celebration. And
0: we also perform on the Central Park stage every summer. So if you are a member of Shakespeare with Veterans, do you have to do the performance part or can you just come for the weekly discussion part? You can come just for the weekly discussion
2: part. I strongly encourage everyone to participate in the performance part. Almost everyone who comes to the group has very little knowledge of Shakespeare when they start. And the way that we approach it with this group is, I think, very accessible everyone's but um, once you get into it and once you start to hear the words and experience it the way we like to do it then almost everyone is excited to get up on stage and share the
1: words so how do you all go about deciding what text to do is that something that you decide or is that something that's a group decision
2: both. The way that the meetings go is that we start out usually with some kind of opening question. You know, I usually will ask something like, what's the most important thing you learned in your basic training? Or tell us about a time when you missed home the most. But that usually gets us talking at the beginning. And then at the beginning, we usually will play a game, like a theater exercise kind of game. And then I would bring in a piece of text, a monologue usually, usually in verse, and we would read it together in the circle and figure out what it means. Basically, read it word by word, line by line, and talk about what it means and not only what the words mean, but what it means to them. Like, what does it evoke for them? When we started, I brought in several pieces that were directly related to wartime and to soldiers. Shakespeare writes a lot about wartime and soldiers, so it wasn't hard to find great pieces. But We also had some of the best conversations that we've ever had in the group around pieces that had nothing to do with war. Like Shylock's speech from The Merchant of Venice, the If You Prick Us, Do We Not Bleed speech um, has been a a touchstone for us as we go along. But also speeches like St. Crispin's Day from Henry V, which is sort of our, our rallying speech that we keep coming back to. When we do performances, we usually will choose one play and I'll edit it down to about an hour. And we come to that. Through consensus, I bring in pieces. We talk about the plays they're from. We see what everyone gets excited about. We talk more. Is if anyone has a big passion for the play, then they'll make a good argument for it. Or if it seems relevant to anything that we've been talking about in the moment or in the group or people's personal experiences, then maybe we'll gravitate toward that one. But we decide as a group what we'll do for the big long pieces in the summer.
1: You know, when you first started, I mean, it was a new program, but when somebody new comes to the program now, how does that work? Because now that maybe you have some veterans, quote, of the program, is that weird getting a new person in and getting them up to speed, as it were? That's a great question.
2: A lot of the people that are in the group now have been in the group from the beginning. So we've been together, a chunk of us, for five years. And so the group has evolved from how it began to Really being a tribe, as we call it, a, a unit outside of the military, we take care of each other and check in on each other and know each other's stories really well and know each other's strengths in terms of performance, I think. But so when a new person comes, it's exciting because then we, everybody gets to tell that new person what we're about one of my favorite things to say in the group is that there are no wrong answers in Shakespeare, which is so counterintuitive to how most people approach or think about Shakespeare. You know, like you have to do the meter and it has to, and it rhymes and you have to do the historical research. But the way that we approach it at Kentucky Shakespeare and the way, especially that I approach it with Shakespeare with veterans is that Shakespeare is what it means to you. You know, Shakespeare is what you make it right. So there are no wrong answers in the text and There are no wrong answers in the group. In the circle, we trust each other and keep each other's confidences and support each other, no matter if it's your first time or your fifth year. I I think one of the most important things that I've learned from the group, and that I think maybe the, the group has brought out in all of us, is that one thing that military veterans miss the most from their time in the service is that unit is being a part of a group that you just know is there for you, that you know, your fellow soldier, airman, corpsman has your back always. And that's what we've been able to become for each other. In addition to that, the other thing that people miss a lot about military service is the mission. So we've been able to give the people that are in the group a new mission. And the mission that we have in front of us is Shakespeare. We have the mission to get the play ready for the summer. We have the mission to reach the community, to help bridge the military-civilian divide, to support each other, and to always show up for each other.
0: I'm wondering how many people are in the group, and was it something that started out, sought after from the beginning, or did it take a while to st- build up your membership from word of mouth at the Veterans Center?
2: Yes, both things. Right now, I'd say we have about 15 core members. Some of those people who I'm calling core members right now are fairly new to the group, like the last six months or so, and some of them have been there since day one. And one of the most important things that Fred was able to do, our co-founder, was bring in all the people that he already knew, Uh, you know, and so people who might be skeptical about Shakespeare would say, oh, well, Colonel Johnson's doing it, so let's go check it out, and so that helped a lot in recruiting people at the beginning, and now, because we're housed at the Vet Center, those counselors there know what we're all about, and so when they've got a person who they're meeting with who they think might benefit from this kind of group, then they send them along to us. So that's another way we recruit. Other than that, it's word of mouth. A couple people who are in the group are in because they saw us perform out in the community and decided it might be interesting to check out. Occasionally, someone will come to one or two meetings and then decide it's not for them. But usually, people come to one or two meetings and then they stay forever.
0: (laughs) Do you know what it was about the Shakespeare program that Colonel Johnson Thought would be good for veterans to experience. You explained a lot of reasons why veterans come and want to stay. I'm just wondering what he saw in it from the beginning, because to me, it's not the first thing that comes to mind. And so I'm just wondering if you know his thought process with it. Yeah, we talked about it a lot. And I
2: think that his thought at the beginning is what all the members say to me now, which is that the words in Shakespeare's plays speak to the soldier's heart in a way that not a lot of writers do. The poetry is beautiful and evocative, and it is malleable. As as I was saying, there are no wrong answers. So we say a lot of times at Kentucky Shakespeare that if you figure out what the words mean and just say them, something about the act of just having those words in your body and letting them come out of your mouth, there's something magical that happens there. And I think that that's what the group has experienced. All of the skeptical soldier types that have come to the group skeptically have found their way into the poetry of Shakespeare in that way. Mm -hmm. I think what a lot of what Fred saw at the beginning was that there's this group of dudes at Luther Luckett, it was all male prison, like tough guys in prison for serious offenses performing at a level that's so impressive that he wondered how in the world that happened. Like, how do you take this group of convicted criminals and make something as seemingly delicate, ephemeral, and and evocative as a Shakespeare play? Mm -hmm. And now the Shakespeare with Veterans Group are not criminals, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and they're not all hardened or or however you would describe the people in the Shakespeare Behind Bars program. But there's something that I think Fred saw that he could relate to, that there's Mm -hmm. something that those guys at Luther Luckett have done that eats at their heart, that they hold locked away, that they don't share easily or often. And that is often true for veterans, especially those who have seen combat, that they hold that experience locked away so tightly don't talk about it and when they feel emotions about it they don't want to express them um, because it's it's too raw it's too hard but through shakespeare they can find echoes of their own stories echoes of their own experience and they can say those words in shakespeare's words it's almost like a release valve they can ex- express emotion without expressing their own emotion exactly
1: Well, I I think sometimes people are surprised by how emotional and psychological Shakespeare's plays are. So for example, I'd love to teach my high school students Macbeth because they start reading it and they're like, oh, he's so despicable or he's like the quote unquote villain, but Shakespeare humanizes. And so a lot of times you really see the full experience of the human being. The villain isn't always totally terrible, and the hero isn't always totally good. I mean, it's the full capacity. So you've been talking a little bit about the emotional and psychological impacts of the program. I'm curious, as the person who's facilitating this, is that difficult for you? I mean, because as far as I know, you're not trained as a counselor. So is that ever a challenge?
2: I have two answers to that question, but but I'll answer what you actually asked first, <laughs> <laughs> which is that I'm not trained as a counselor. That's absolutely true. We have in the history of the program had some actual trained counselors from the vet center as part of the program. And when we've had moments in the group where people do approach really difficult or vulnerable moments. I've been glad that, that those counselors were there, um, although they weren't there in their official capacity. They were just there as part of a group. But even when we haven't had a professional among us, I've been amazed at how well the group takes care of each other. When that happens, it happens from time to time. When, when someone shares something really vulnerable, I try to hang back and let the group speak to it. Because one of the things that everyone who says who's been a part of the group is that one of the things they value the most about the group is that everyone in that circle knows a little bit, at least, what they've been through. And they've allowed me to come into the group, and so they trust me now because of that. But other than me, everyone there has been in the service. Almost everyone has deployed during wartime, so... They all at least a little bit understand what each other has gone through. So when someone approaches something vulnerable, because we've established this trust in the circle, it's almost always someone else in the group or a couple other people in the group who speak up and are are able to um, give that person what they need in that moment. Usually what the person needs who has said something vulnerable all they needed was to share that thing. All they needed was to get it out because they don't talk about it with their families. They don't talk about it with their friends, but they feel like they can talk about it in, in the group. It's not a therapy group, but the process of doing it can be therapeutic. So that sort of thing that I've just described has happened over the past five years, but it's not the norm. It almost never happens because of something I've asked you know it almost never happens as a response to a direct question or something that that i've like pushed on or tried to make happen i'm not trying to get reactions or trying to get people to share things at all it almost always comes out of the text it comes out of the shakespeare One of the stories that we all like to tell because it was the most amazing moment, it was the most cathartic moment. This was in the first year of the program, working on that Shylock monologue, If You Prick Us, Do We Not Bleed? You know, Shylock talking about how Everyone is terrible to him and treats him differently because he's a Jew, because I am a Jew. We were having the conversation and talking about it in the circle, and everyone was saying, it could be because I am a soldier, because I am a whatever, and talking about the othering and making people feel like the other. And this one Vietnam vet spoke up. He's not in the group anymore. He's actually passed away since this several years ago and told a story about when he was in Vietnam, his unit was being fired on by a a group of farmers. And he led a small group of soldiers to and found this old Vietnamese man hiding. And he said he just felt so much hatred for him because he had been shooting at his fellow soldiers. You know, so he shot him. And he said at that moment in the group, I understand now that man was doing the same thing that I was doing. The only reason we were different is because we were on different sides of this conflict. He was trying to defend his family and his home, and I was trying to defend my soldiers, and it was just this Mm -hmm. sort of breakthrough moment for him. We've had other other moments like that, but they're not always that dramatic. I really wanted to make sure that I pointed out that how much I've learned from being a part of the group, so many things. But one of the most important things is that when, when you said villains aren't aren't just villains and heroes aren't just heroes we've gotten into so many great debates in the group about whether prince hal henry v is a good guy or a bad guy (laughs) you know and we're pretty solidly in in factions about it there are people on falstaff's side you know and people on on prince henry's side you know people are like how could he betray his friend falstaff when he Kicks him out of the country at the end, um, Henry IV, and and then there are other people who said, yeah, Falstaff was fine and all, but he's also a drunk and he's also not a really good guy and he's a thief, you know. So we've had so many conversations about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Henry V is set up to be this big hero, but is he really? You know what? Really, were his reasons for going to war? You know all of those things. So. In directing the history plays, the the Game of Kings for the past four years, I've learned so much about the soldier ethos and um, so much about warfare from these people in this group that it really fundamentally changed how I approach those plays. Interesting. 100%. No question. They are teaching me so much. I'm grateful to be among them every Thursday.
0: I'm wondering, how has the program changed over the the years, and are there things that you'd like to do with the program that you haven't been able to do yet? So when we started the program, uh, it was
2: a long time ago, and it was actually even before I was on staff at Kentucky Shakespeare, it was just like a freelance teaching gig for me. You know, sure, I'll do this, whatever, veteran's cool. You know, and Kentucky Shakespeare didn't know what was going to happen to it either. So we went in and we did a couple of, this is what it could be like, and, and and people were into it. So we did a little more and every week I would say, okay, we don't know what this is going to be. So we get to decide together. Here's a piece of text that I find exciting. Let's see if you think it's exciting. And sometimes, you know, the group was into it and sometimes they weren't, but once we hit our stride, then it was like, okay, we're going to keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep doing this. And then we did about a 10 minute performance of monologues, mostly choralized monologues, because at that point, nobody wanted to be on stage by themselves. So we did that on the stage in Central Park. It was great, transformative for a lot of the people that were in that group, really exciting for me. And after that, there was no turning back. So the people in the group, the core members, kept getting smarter about Shakespeare, kept being more open to ways to approach the plays, and they kept getting better at performing. So now, like we've got a group of people in this company who are actually pretty darn good actors now. But you know, it hasn't become like we're just doing acting. That's not what it is now. We still do all the other stuff too. still like sitting in the circle and being together is the most important thing. But there are some people in the group who really have taken to this, the performing part of it, and a lot of people in the group are really good performers now. And we have now a shared vocabulary and and yet, We're still completely welcoming to new people. This current global pandemic has changed things, thrown us for a loop a bit. We were on a good trajectory with doing longer and harder plays every year. Two years ago we did Henry the Fourth part one. And then last year we did Macbeth. And this year we were gonna do Henry V. And that was a big deal. You know, it was cast. We had started rehearsing it, we had our cutting bom da bum, bada, bum. And then March happened. So <laughs> just like the rest of Kentucky Shakespeare's season, it's put on hold until next summer. We're still gonna do it, but next summer. So we haven't expanded in numbers a lot. And that's something that that I'm curious about trying next. I wonder if we branch out to different locations. I wonder if we try some sort of one-off type sessions or, you know, shorter sessions rather than come, you know, give us every Thursday night for the rest of your life kind of sessions. Because um, <laughs> that's what it is now. We Every Thursday night for the rest of our lives, we're going to be together. But, you know, to, to try to get new people interested in Shakespeare in different ways, new veterans, because I do think there's something about Shakespeare, the act of saying Shakespeare's words, and the act of approaching the stories and the universal themes that can be really healing specifically for military veterans. So I'm interested in expanding in whatever way we can.
0: So have you still been meeting every Thursday night through COVID? Or are you doing it through Zoom? Or how's that? working?
2: Yeah, we did through Zoom for a couple of months and that was fine. Then we started meeting in the park because we can be six feet apart and outdoors at Central Park. Uh, And that's been pretty great. Now it's starting to get dark in the evenings. So that makes it a little not as easy, but it's also kind of great. You know, we're sitting out there like a group of 10 of us sitting in a circle and it's dark and the, you know, the crickets are chirping and it's been so beautiful. The past month of Thursdays that it feels like we're camping without a campfire. That's been pretty wonderful. So next, we're going to move into a different phase because we are doing a thing for 2020. It was Kentucky Shakespeare's 60th, and it was would have been the fifth anniversary summer of Shakespeare with Veterans. So we're going to make a digital performance instead which I'm real excited about.
1: So tell us about that.
2: Absolutely. So so what we decided to do was sort of go back to our roots and do something digitally. When we first started talking about this idea, we weren't sure we were going to be able to be together at all. But we conceptualized this that everyone could film it themselves in their home. So we're still going to do something like that. So everyone in the group who wants to is going to perform a piece of Shakespeare text that somehow relates to a story from their time in the service. Not literally, mostly, but something that relates somehow thematically. Um, Everyone's will be different and almost everyone is gonna do it and then I'll edit it all together and we'll have a full piece of people telling their stories and talking about a piece of Shakespeare text that they've found resonance with.
1: That sounds very cool.
0: Especially for Veterans Day. That's a perfect project for Veterans Day.
2: I hope so. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty great.
0: If there are veterans out there who would be interested in participating in this program, what do they need to do to get involved?
2: Yes, I hope so. I would love to have more people. We're all very nice. We're very nice. On, the, on Kentucky Shakespeare's website, kyshakespeare.com slash vets, or you could just click around on the website and find it. There's information about the program, and including our meeting times and how to get in touch with me, which is amy at kyshakespeare.com. So any veteran out there, any age, any gender, any branch of service, any rank, whether you deploy during wartime or not, email me. And I'll tell you where we're meeting.
0: And if somebody who's not a vet just wants to see the Veterans Day film that you're piecing together, how will they find that? Would that also be at the Kentucky Shakespeare site?
2: Yeah, well, we're going to blast it out on social media. It'll be on our Facebook page and our YouTube page um, and also on on the kyshakespeare.com website also. So if you want to visit our Facebook page, um, it's just Kentucky Shakespeare on Facebook, then you can see everything we've got going on, including this Veterans Day program.
0: Now we're joined by Stephen Montgomery by phone and he is a member of the Shakespeare for Veterans group.
1: So Stephen, tell us a little bit uh, about you and, and how you got involved with Shakespeare with veterans.
3: But I was in the, started out in the Navy during the Vietnam era, and uh, had been out of the service for about 10 years when I when I re-enlisted as an Army Intelligence Sergeant. So that's what I've been doing. I, reti- I actually retired from the military in 2015. And while being screened by the VA, then uh, when I was in one of the clinics, I saw one of the uh, Shakespeare with Veteran flyers on the, on the counter and picked it up and was reading it. And it sounded interesting. So I, I checked it out. Went down to the Vet Center and that's sort of how it got started. Now, I didn't hadn't heard about it before. I just saw the flyer, and and went down to visit.
1: So I'm curious, you know, some people read Shakespeare and love Shakespeare. Did you have a background in in English, or had you read Shakespeare's plays, (laughs) or was it just more curiosity that got you? Uh,
3: I'd say it was probably more curiosity. I was familiar with Shakespeare a little bit from high school, and read a little bit. Of course, when I was in high school, there was other schools that had like senior plays that were Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet, you know that kind of thing, You know some of the big name Shakespeare plays. So I was familiar with it, but I had never been really involved in, in Shakespeare or Shakespearean language or or anything like that. The Shakespeare for Vets, that it has happened to be one of those programs that the VA encourages, but we're not directly involved with. So. Like I said, it was just more of a happenstance, more of a curiosity than, than anything else.
1: So when you first attended, I guess, your first meeting, was it something that you knew right away? Like, oh, I think I'm going to like this? Or tell me a little bit about what your thinking was that first meeting and whether you were sold the first time or thought, you know, I maybe I need <laughs> to go back yeah. again.
3: Well, I wasn't real nervous or I was more curious than anything else. And so I think what... The drawing card was that there were other veterans involved. That This was a veterans program. Uh, I had just retired. I had retired for about almost a year when I went to my first visit. And I was having a little bit of some issues in transitioning from military to, to civilian. My job in the military as uh, working in intelligence then and so everything was mission focused. Well, here, I'm out, and I'm by myself. I don't have any close civilian friends, and... I didn't have a mission to work on. So by it being a group of veterans, that was that was the drawing card. The Shakespeare part was sort of a curiosity. Now, the first visit, I was sort of sat in the background. Not, I mean, I was a part of the group, didn't say a whole lot, just sort of observed, sort of see how people interacted. Everybody seemed to be very transparent. There were veterans from every era, uh, from Vietnam to Bosnia to Panama to Iraq to Afghanistan. I mean, all age groups from mid-30s to 70s. Oh, wow. So every everybody was represented. All the services were represented except the Coast Guard. That was very soothing and calming that there was other veterans. And so as that meeting progressed, and then subsequent meetings, and I became more comfortable with the Shakespeare. But it was the veteran element that was the that was the drawing card.
1: Amy, when we spoke with her, she talked about how Shakespeare can be very psychological and emotional. <laughs> yeah. And so have you ever had situations where because of something that you all had been doing in the group, it's maybe unexpectedly made you have to deal with something that maybe you weren't expecting?
3: Actually, yes. Uh, yes, and it sometimes does that. But since most of us that are in the group are combat veterans, then I didn't really feel alone when those emotions would well up during the discussion. And as we discussed those emotions then it wasn't like there was a, all of a sudden there was a spotlight on you, what did you do and what's going on? You, know, you sort of had this emotional swell from inside, and then as we talk about that particular emotion through Shakespeare, then the other ventures, they don't really talk about their experiences. They talk about what it felt like to be in Bosnia, what it felt like to be in a combat zone those kinds of things that related to their experiences. Mm-hmm. I know, M- Amy had mentioned Macbeth, and Macbeth depicts the struggles that people have both within themselves and without, and you get these characters that, that sometimes appear evil or good, and that sort of drives the plot, or the motive is what drives the plot of the, of the play. But you have these different monologues, like Henry V, there's the St. Crispin's Day monologue. Uh, in Hamlet, there's To Be or Not to Be monologue, and it's those monologues that, that reflect... conflict that's in that individual character and it's that conflict that most reflects the soldier ethos i would say Um, honor and respect and and commitment and those kinds of things but but yeah there's been times where it's been difficult but you know you're surrounded by people that understand exactly where you've been most of them have been in the same position or in the same circumstance and so, by, by getting that out in the open, then you can talk about the emotion and you can reflect on Shakespeare without actually having to tell your story.
1: Gotcha. And,
3: and that's where the healing process comes in, is that you're able to express it, And if you don't express
1: it, then it stays buried. Well, I feel like I want to bring you into my high school class because you're, you know, (laughs) using a lot of the language as an English teacher that I use to talk about Shakespeare, you know, motive and plot and ethos and and all that stuff. I mean, have you ever felt like you're sort of in an English class again? Or does that just kind of come with immersing yourself in the plays?
3: I think it's more of an immersion kind of thing where, yeah, I was familiar with Shakespeare as far as the different plays and what the different plots were, but I was more focused on the motive, mm-hmm. you know. And when when we got into these monologues, then I was very surprised on how closely identifiable Shakespeare exhibits those emotions that we as soldiers and, and sailors have actually experienced. And actually, it like in Henry V, when he's talking about when they're getting ready for battle— mm-hmm you know, I got ready you know, we had that battle in Afghanistan and you know we were shot at and we were shooting back and, and you know that's sort of what they were doing. You know, they may not have had M fours and grenades but, but they they were still fighting each other. And so I, I think that's what the most surprising part was, was that was how much that we as Military people can identify with those things that Shakespeare talked about, especially in those monologues when, when Henry the Fifth is talking about his internal conflict between, hey guys, I know we're outnumbered and I know we're outclassed and I know we're outsupplied, but hey, think of your country, you know, the honor, and think of uh, you know the courage, and, and if you don't want to be here, go on home because we don't need you here. If you don't want to be with us, if you're not going to die with us, we don't want you to fight with us. And that's the same emotion. That's the same uh, rallying cry that. That our commanding officers give us when when we're in a combat situation. Hey, we'll get through this together. But that's that's sort of what it's what it's about.
1: Has there been a play or a, or a piece of Shakespeare that that you have particularly loved? Something that you've done with the group that it really resonated with you? Yeah, in I believe it's Henry the
3: Fourth. Talk about Falstaff. Mm-hmm. And Falstaff, he's the ex-veteran who's uh, who used to be man about town, but now he's he just sort of goofing off and, and sort of sloughing off. So I played that part. And we all have this ego and alter ego. He played very well into my alter ego. Then. I would never act like that or do those kinds of things in real life, that it was it was a lot of fun playing that other part, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of the dark side of, of a person. Uh, so I enjoyed that. And there have been some plays that I hope we get to do that we haven't done yet. Pericles is one that comes up, and, and that's because that Pericles is not only the hunter, but he's also the hunted. Oh. And it just shows how the day-to-day life and the journey of life can be both dangerous as well as fulfilling. So I, I hope one day we're able to, to do that
1: play. Because of what you've been doing with Shakespeare with veterans, in your free time, do you find yourself picking up Shakespeare, or do you leave that for what you do with the group each week? (laughs)
3: Well, Amy's pretty tough on getting us to to memorize a lot of lines,
1: Uh and so
3: I may not be reading a lot of extra Shakespeare, but I seem to find myself spending a lot of time trying to remember all the lines.
1: Gotcha. And
3: so if there's something that I'm missing, then then I may even pick up a book and read that section because she does a lot of editing. A play that may last two hours or two and a half hours, then we try to shrink it down to forty-five minutes or an hour. And so there's a lot of editing done. So, so yeah, I do find myself looking at Shakespeare to sort of see what's, what the full story is. But it's mostly concentrating on memorizing those lines on the, that she assigns us and, and trying to complete the mission. You know, do do my part so that what, I look good for the tribe, and, the, and, that, and everyone else does the same thing. They try to you know, do their part, and that's just like it is in a military unit. Everyone has a part to play, and the mission is successful or fails based on how well they do their parts.
1: Getting up in front of other people, was that intimidating at all, or, or did you already feel comfortable with the idea of that?
3: Well, in my military background, then, then I was accustomed to, to standing up in front of generals and colonels and admirals and giving briefs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, public speaking was a given in in my role in the military. I know for myself, then when we're doing a performance, sort of don't even realize that the audience is there. You know, we've gone through these lines and and we've interacted with each other, and it's that being in the moment of the play or being in the moment of that scene that really is the driving force. And it wouldn't matter if the seats were empty or if they were full of people. Mm -hmm. The audience is sort of ignored. Uh, in my mind, we're, we're doing our part and we're, we're sort of in that moment.
1: Stephen, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Amy and I are going to talk about what we're reading.
0: So, Carrie. <laughs> so, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a long week and it's only Wednesday, <laughs> but I want to know, what have you been reading?
1: I reread a book because I'm going to be teaching it to my middle schoolers. It is called The Mostly True Adventures of Homer P. Figg by Rodman Philbrick, and it is a Newbery honor book. I always try to pick Newbery honor books. Just, I mean, there's lots of high quality children's books, but it helps narrow, I guess, the field down for me a little bit. So this is a book that I've used it in in different ways before. So this book is set during the American Civil War, and there's a boy named Homer P. Fig. His father is dead, his mother is dead, and he and his older brother Harold, they're being raised, although that's generous, by their uncle who makes them sleep with the pigs. I mean, he works them. He doesn't really take care of them. And his uncle essentially sells his brother into the Union Army, but he's underage. And so Homer says, I've I've got to save my brother. Then it's the story of how he attempts to do this. So in the past, I have used this book in conjunction with a book called Across Five Aprils which is by Irene Hunt. And that is another book that's set during the American Civil War. And so those are two books about that period. This time I am using the book because another book that I like to teach is called Nothing But The Truth by Avi. And it's all about what does it mean to be an honest person? And so because this is called The Mostly True Adventures of Homer P. Fig, it's also about what does it mean to lie? What is it, you know, are there some lies that are for the greater good? Hmm. So that's kind of what I've paired this book with. One of the great things about this book is that it is Full of similes. Even if you don't want to teach the whole book, there are chapters that are just chock full of similes. So if that is something that you want to have your either your student become aware of or your child become aware of, there are tons and tons and tons in this book. So it's a quick read, but it's got a a story about two brothers. It's set during the Civil War, and it's got that whole like journey archetype. And you could even even compare it to to the odyssey and, so would, and all the things that he gets involved in so
0: would you consider it a war book i know it's set during the civil war
1: yes especially the end part but it's not like overly violent i, I mean you really don't see the war until the very end of the book i would say 90% of the book is about him just trying to reach his brother it's mostly kind of an adventure story, okay. More than it is a war story. So I would say that you know it, it does touch on the Civil War, but it's it's with a light touch, mm-hmm. if if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So well, that's kind of fun that
0: you talked about that book on Veterans Day. Yeah, you know, there's yeah, a little bit of a, for sure, you know, military tie to it.
1: Yeah, that's for sure, cool. for sure. So what have you been reading?
0: Well, mine's a little bit dark. Uh, So you have to remember, this is mid-October, and so I'm reading some darker things, you know, leading up to Halloween. But I just finished a book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer by Michelle McNamara. So there are many people who listen to true crime podcasts and they love to binge watch true crime documentaries on TV. That's a very popular thing right now. And I'm not necessarily one of those people, but I do like reading true crime books. And I've particularly enjoyed several in recent years that I've read, including In Cold Blood by Truman Capote and Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. And Each of these is creative nonfiction, where it's more than just facts like you would find in a newspaper article. There are elements of descriptive language or even the author inserting themselves into the story. In fact, in Cold Blood, Capote sort of makes himself a friend to the killers in order to get their story. And that really makes the story come alive. So in this book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, it would fall into that category. And it's about the case, serial rapist turned serial killer that was active in California in the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s called the Golden State Killer. He raped 50 people and murdered 12 people. And even as the book was being published, the case was still not solved. The book's published date was February of 2018, but the killer was captured in April of 2018. So as you can see, he tricked law enforcement and investigators, both professional and amateur, for upwards of 40 years. Another thing that is tragic but interesting about this book is that the author, Michelle McNamara, died before it was published, about two years before it was published. She passed away of a combination of a heart defect and an overdose of drugs at her home. And she ran a very popular website called True Crime Diary, where she and other readers who are amateur sleuths would analyze and try to solve cold cases. But this case is the one that she was obsessed with the most. So the book combines chapters that she wrote for the book, and then in other chapters, they're written by her assistants based on her notes and excessive research that she did. And it's it's unusual in that way. She she worked extensively with law enforcement to help solve the case. So in many ways, this book is as much about her working on the case as it is about the case itself. At points, this book gets a little in the weeds for me, as far as the technical nuances of evidence collection, of different tools that they would use to find the killer. And that, for me, was a strike against it. I like cr- true crime books, but I'm not an amateur detective. So parts of that were a little confusing and I had to skim over. But what it did highlight was the obsessiveness which the author investigated this case, all the little minutiae which made it apparent to me that this wasn't actually a healthy project for her. And it also highlighted how much technology has helped investigators solve crimes, mainly with DNA and the popularity of sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. That's actually how they eventually caught the Golden State Killer. Um, A distant relative of his submitted a DNA sample to one of those sites for genealogy purposes. And wham, bam, there you go. It led to the killer. But even things like social media and crowdsourcing info and the ability for different law enforcement agency to connect all helps with solving these types of crimes. So all in all, I enjoyed this book. It reads pretty quickly. It's not for the squeamish, though, because she does go into detail about many of the crimes, so beware of that. And it has actually made me extra careful about locking all my doors and windows. And as a side note, HBO has made a documentary limited series about this book and the case, which I'm eager to watch. And if this kind of thing interests you, you may also want to check out a book and TV adaptation called Mindhunter. And I've not read the book. I've seen the series. But the book is by John E. Douglas, and it's about how the FBI's elite serial crime unit was formed and how they studied the behavior of serial killers and their motives in the 1970s to pioneer a whole new forensic tool for investigators. So the TV series is on Netflix, and it's based on the book, and it stars Jonathan Groff as the main FBI agent. And many people may know Jonathan Groff as the original King George in Broadway's Hamilton. So there you go. I've brought this full circle back to live theater. (laughs) There you go.
1: I was like, how are you going to tie this to veterans? I'm curious. (laughs) <laughs> maybe not <laughs> veterans, but to theater. So, okay, maybe I missed this, but did I'll Be Gone in the Dark? Did the book itself and her writing the book help? Yes. Did her putting it all together help to eventually catch the killer?
0: Um, yes. Okay. Did. I mean, you know, obviously she died two years before they actually caught him but with her website and all the investigations she was doing she was giving all this information to the police and they would check out tips and she would check out tips um she met with all the old uh, detectives who had worked on the case in the 70s and 80s and was looking at it you know in new ways with them and, and then there were new detectives cuz this has been going on for like i said 40 years right so she did not solve it on her own but yes she contributed and actually she's the one who coined the term the golden state killer
1: wow That's a book that's on my list, so I want to read it fairly soon.
0: Her piece in it, her portion of it, was pretty fascinating, too. Sort of her obsessiveness with it. And the other thing she's also known for, she was Patton Oswalt's first wife before she passed away. So some people may recognize her name from that.
1: Very good. All right. Amy and I are going to take a very brief break. And when we come back, Amy... Attaway and Stephen Montgomery are each going to give us their top two.
0: We are back with Amy Attaway and with Stephen Montgomery, and we're going to ask them their top two. So Amy, some people have taken up new interests or hobbies during COVID as a means of relaxation or to cope. What's the top new interest or hobby you've developed in the last six or seven months and what attracted you to this? I love this question for a couple of reasons. (laughs) One is that I'm so lucky
2: right now to be working where I work because so many of my peers and so many performing arts professionals are out of work. Mm. Our industry is decimated by what's going on right now. And Kentucky Shakespeare so far has been able to persevere. And that's been amazing. It's been amazing from our supporters. It's been amazing from our staff, from our leadership, from our board. We have been able to keep going. And it's been really hard. So I've actually been working uh, almost more than I would have been working in a normal summer. So there's not been a ton of free time, but I have taken up with plants.
0: <laughs> I've taken up with plants. <laughs> and it's, it's quite scandalous. So you've You've got a green thumb now is what you're saying? Kind
2: of. I mean, so normally summer is my busiest time, right? I'm usually working 24 hours a day in the summer. And this year, as I said, I have still been working a whole lot, but I've been at home. So when I've got a break from rehearsal or a break from, you know, working on my computer, I can go in the backyard. So I did a lot of planting in the backyard this summer, which is lovely. But now I'm mostly obsessing over houseplants. I'm pretty much trying to put a plant on every surface. (laughs) I haven't gotten to that point yet where I know the names of plants, but I, I do know sort of mostly how to care for each of them. And it's just, I can't get enough.
0: I mainly have to do succulent. You can kind of forget about them for long periods of time and they like that because I don't like being too wet. And so that's generally what I have to have in my house because I sometimes forget to water them for periods of time but now when you were doing stuff with plants outside can we narrow it down to was it like <laughs> vegetables or are we talking like flowers and shrubs and things like that
2: well I've been through phases you know it's been it's been a long pandemic man um, <laughs> I did a bunch of flowers in the spring and um, then I planted tomatoes they're just now stopping producing so tomatoes and then I have moved right back to the house plants
1: I could totally feel you on this because I bought a whole bunch of air plants. (laughs) I'm fascinated by these air plants. What? What? Oh, air plants. You can totally ignore them. I mean, I spray them. Like I got this spray fertilizer thing. They don't need soil. Yeah, they look
0: kind of like spiders.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'll send you some pictures in an email. But they are like super easy. And I think I have one, two, three, four. I have six now. Oh my gosh. And and they're very minimal, right? So Uh they take minimal energy, but they're also like visually minimal, which I kind of like. Right. Okay. I'm fascinated.
2: See, I'm a rookie. I'm still learning.
1: (laughs) All right. Your second question, Amy. So Kentucky Shakespeare created a unique form of play watching in October with Macbeth in the parking lot as a response to COVID and keeping audiences safe. So what has been the top most challenging or the top most exciting thing about having to re envision play watching during a pandemic?
2: I think that the top most exciting thing has been the way in which Matt Wallace, a producing artistic director, also directed this play, was able to respond to the moment thematically and logistically, and how the marriage of those two responses made this piece of art. He took the idea that how, if not addressed, this virus could sort of decimate our society, and made this dystopian future Macbeth, and the reality that People need to stay away from each other, and the actors need to be distant from each other as well. And so, he took all of those logistical challenges and made this whole immersive experience for everyone so that while you were in your car waiting for the play to begin, you heard Scotland Underground radio, you know, on your car radio before the play started. So, you begin to feel like you're a part of this world. And so, this parking lot next to Joe Creason Park becomes this whole world of this play. And so it really was, I think, this like immersive and sort of transportive experience based on necessity and based on the moment, which was exciting.
0: I miss live theater so much. So I'm so glad that you all were able to be creative and come up with a way To do a play, a live action play. I'm curious how we're going to listen to it in the car, on our car radio. So it's just like a station that you took over? Yeah, sort of. Um, (laughs) It's a very low frequency station,
2: so you can only hear it, you know, within the bounds of the performance area. Well, if you keep your radio turned to that station and drive out, you'll get static or something else, you know.
1: That's amazing. It's very It's amazing. Yeah.
0: Stephen, it's your turn. And I I want to ask you, what has been one of the top things that you have done in your free time during the quarantine that has been new to you?
3: Actually, during the COVID, when they first isolated, I sort of enjoyed that. One of the things that I fell back on after retirement was being isolated. And that was one of the things that that I was supposed to sort of draw away from. As humans, we're created as social creatures. And if we don't maintain that Contact, then you know that drives some of the addiction, some of the depression, some of the, some of those things that, that are really negative in our behavior. So when it first started, I sort of enjoyed the the isolation, but I realized that it, that you need to be mindful and you can't stay isolated because it's just unhealthy. One of the things that we sort of my wife and I adopted was to uh, we've always planned on doing a lot of traveling. We haven't really done as much as we'd like to. do. In fact, we had a trip that was planned for. British Isles in June huh. that had to cancel.
1: Oh, that's and, disappointing. Uh,
3: and so what we've been doing is that we've been planning trips. Uh, when this when this is all over and done with, and we've got a trip planned to Yellowstone. We've got another trip planned up to the Northwest. And so we're doing these planning things. And then the, I guess the one thing that that's the most different is playing online nonviolent games. Oh. Uh, my brother and I I have a brother that lives in Phoenix, Arizona, and he and I have gotten into this it's a tank game where get into a clan or a group, and you have these battles. And these battles last about two days, twice a week. And in these battles, then you, know, you shoot other tanks, and you try to get as many tanks as you can. And so he and I have enjoyed doing that together. Those are some of the things that, that I've been doing that I hadn't done before.
1: Is your brother in the military? Or was he in the military?
3: Yeah, he, he was a short-timer. He was in for four years back in the 80s, I believe.
1: Okay, and, uh,
3: He's about 10 years younger than I am. So, yeah, he was he was in the Army. So we do have a, a connection there. In fact, I've got another brother who was also in the Navy. All the guys in, in my family have, have been in the military, my two brothers, myself,
1: and my, and my father. Oh, wow. That's very cool. People often want to thank veterans for their service, so especially in November when Veterans Day comes around. But they may feel unsure how to go about doing this. And some veterans say that they don't feel comfortable being thanked. For their service. So I'm curious, what is the top way you think someone can respectfully show their appreciation for what veterans have done to protect the country or aid in democracy?
3: Well, you know, in fact, that topic has actually come up in our group, Mm -hmm. in our Shakespeare group. And I think the answer to that question, it tends to fluctuate, depending on maybe the mood of the veteran or the sign of the times, but there's not a, a definite answer. It used to be that when people would thank me for my service, then I would sort of reflect back on the things that, I, that had gone on or that I had done while in the service. Mm-hmm. And, and in the back of my mind, I think, well, would you really thank me if you knew, if you really knew everything kind mm-hmm. of thing? But I've had to stand back from that, look at their intentions through their eyes, that uh, that they see us you know, serving our country, uh, that very few people do. I guess one, less than 1% of the population has, has actually served in any capacity. And so I look at their attentions, and, and, they're, and they're coming from a position of, of thankfulness. Mm-hmm. So I've changed my perspective of that. It's okay to thank a veteran for, for his or her service. But I think a greater action would be that we take what the veterans have done for our country and we – and we take that to heart, not just thank the veteran, but, but take it to heart to where we start to treat each other with respect and, and, we, and we, start to, we start to be constructive and make our country a, a better place to live and begin to honor those things that represent who we are, at least what we would like to be as a country, such as respecting our flag and, and encouraging voting and, and the human rights and respect for our differences. I think we are not a perfect country, but I've been to a whole bunch of different countries and compared to any other place on earth, There's not any place I'd rather be than here Mm -hmm. in the United States. And so no matter what I have found in other places in the world, I can find the same thing somewhere in this country and probably better. And it's because of our diversity. I guess I could say that if people, if they truly were thankful for what veterans have done for our country, then they would be more actively involved in making this a better place instead of being so divisive the way we are now. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll be upfront with you. I've since... 2016 election i've not watched any news i've not read any newspapers the way i get information is either anecdotal or through conversation with other people because it just creates so much anxiety Hmm. and that this isn't how i see our country this isn't how it should be
1: well i am going to thank you for your service and for being a guest on our podcast i really appreciate it i
3: appreciate the opportunity i I think through shakespeare then, then i've been able to be more open to be more transparent To form a tribe with other veterans and to be more open about about my emotions and my experiences and it's all been because of Shakespeare so I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to to share that with you guys
0: Thanks for joining us today For show notes for any episode please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.